Okay, so I'm here with Christian Burney, the Assistant Professor of Law at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Christian, go ahead, introduce yourself. So hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on the program here. So yeah, I am the, or not the, but a Assistant Professor of Law at the United States Military Academy. I'm a captain in the Judge Advocate General's Corps of the United States Army. Uh, so here in my, my current capacity as an Assistant Professor of Law, I teach uh, law classes to both law majors and not law majors, a variety of other majors here at the United States Military Academy to cadets. So they're all undergrad uh, cadets, but they're all going to be commissioning, obviously, as second lieutenants in the Army here. And whether a few months at this point for the firsties or seniors or a couple years for some of the underclass folks, uh, we offer a law major as well as just a variety of classes in the law department. And I teach several of those. Okay. One of the things I wanted to ask you about and why we had you on is um, last year, FY22, the National Defense Authorization Act uh, has quite extensive changes to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Now, um, I guess we'll start with what is the Uniform Code of Military Justice? How is it different than just justice more broadly? Sure. So in the military, the U.S. military, we have what you call the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It is uniform in that it is the same for all the services. So it's the same for the Army, same for the Navy, same for the Air Force, the uh, Marines, and then the Coast Guard when they're playing with the Department of Defense. Uh, It's military because it applies to the military services. Uh, It's a code because it's, it's, it's a law. It's passed by Congress, and it's justice because, well, it's a criminal code. So... It's essentially the criminal code for the United States military is what it is. It was passed originally in 1950, I think I have the year right, uh, as a way of standardizing justice across the military services. Prior to that, there had been different codes for the different services. So the Navy had their own set of criminal laws. The Army had their own set of criminal laws. Uh, I'll focus mostly on the Army stuff just because that's what I'm familiar with. Prior to the UCMJ, it was the Articles of War that had, in more or less the same form, been passed down since uh, the Continental Congress had passed the original set of Articles of War in 1775. And there had been some changes, some fairly significant, uh, up until the UCMJ was passed. But in essentially the same form, it it survived. Um, The UCMJ was a response to the massive number of court-martials that occurred during World War II, and a lot more, uh, the public and the American public had a lot more interaction with court marshals because a lot more people were serving in the military. And so there was a greater uh, response and feelings about military justice at that point. And so that kind of led to the creation of the UCMJ. In a lot of ways, it's very similar to a civilian criminal code uh, that you might find in like civilian state court or the federal courts in some way. It has all your regular crimes like murders in there, you know, uh, robberies in there, anything like that, theft, all that can be prosecuted under there. And it would look very similar in a lot of ways to a civilian prosecution. There are also, however, some very unique aspects to the UCMJ that are uniquely military due to the the unique nature of being in the military and the the demands the military places on folks and the needs that the military has for uh, controlling or, or, or disciplining its, its folks. So things that would not be criminal in a civilian context, say, you know, the, uh, you know, checkout person at Walmart falls asleep 
uh, while they're sitting at the checkout line. They might get fired, uh, but they're not going to be criminally prosecuted for that. Compare that to the sentry on duty at a outpost in name a country we're operating in, and that person falls asleep on the job, uh, not only might they get fired, but they very likely could be and almost definitely would be criminally prosecuted for that offense. The stakes are very different uh, in the military context versus the civilian context. So that's kind of underpins some of the, the rationale for having that, that separate code, as well as the, the jurisdiction that it needs to encompass. So a civilian criminal code normally applies in the location that you are. So the Arkansas criminal code applies in Arkansas. And that's it, right? It doesn't apply anywhere else. Whereas the UCMJ applies worldwide. So it's a worldwide jurisdiction for any military member, at least active military member, wherever you are in the world, that criminal code applies. And so you don't have to worry about a bunch of different um, codes or not having the ability to uh, control conduct in some way or have, you know, have that ability. Okay. So one of the... Uh recent additions, right, in the in the last NDAA is sort of an emphasis on uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, crimes of that nature. Um, can you kind of talk about how we got here um, and, and how this changes things for the military? Sure. There, that has been an ongoing theme, uh, and it, it stems from in some ways, even the UCMJ, the passage of it itself, and then its changes since then have all been broadly a, a civilianization, if you will, of the military justice system. Again, going back to those articles of war, it was very much a just a tool of the commander. And it was an order by the command. Court martial was just another another order by the commander to, to enforce discipline on the troops in some way. Um passage of the UCMJ and, and changes since then have been very much made it look in a lot of ways like a civilian justice system. And the emphasis on sex assault has driven some of those changes as well. Uh, this really became, I think, a, a hotter topic in probably like the mid to late 2000s, again, with a lot more public contact with the military due to ongoing wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, documentaries like The Invisible War, I don't know if any of you have seen that, but uh, documenting some uh, kind of a high-profile documentary on sexual assault in the military and the numbers, it, it kind of became a, a, I mean, it certainly was a problem, but it also became a, a political um, issue for several folks. And so that drove some of those uh changes that have occurred it's the the pace of change in the ucmj has been much more rapid in the last 10 12 years than it was at any previous period mostly due to this emphasis on um, eradicating sexual assault and and the biggest problem that uh, congress had with the way the military was going about it was again going back to the fact that generally speaking throughout history the court martial has been a tool of the commander an order by the commander um, it has been, up until now, the commander who decides if a case is going to go to trial. So instead of a civilian DA or something like that, it's been the commander saying, yes, this case, uh, this set of facts, I decide to dispose of that through a court-martial. Um, and then from that point, it looks very similar, like I said, to a civilian trial in a lot of ways, but it's the commander who makes that initial, what we would call a disposition decision to send it to a trial. The new changes uh, 
remove certain cases from that the commander's ability to do that. Okay, so it seems like there's a, a unique aspect to military justice is this role of uh, the commander, right? So could you kind of elaborate, like, who, who qualifies as a commander? What special authorities do they have? What does that actually entail? Okay. A, a commander, at least in the Army, and I'll, I'll address this mostly from the Army side, it's slightly different on the Marine side or Air Force side. But for our purposes in the Army-wise, the first level at which you have a commander is the company level, which approximately 100 soldiers per company, if you will. Some companies vary greatly, but it's generally a captain, so someone who has at least four years probably in the Army at a minimum as your first level commander that has any uh, what we call disposition authority to do something in terms of military justice. That commander cannot actually send anything to a court-martial. They can recommend a court-martial, but it has to move up the chain. The company commander cannot send it to a court-martial. If they think that something one of their soldiers has done is court-martial worthy, they would forward that decision to the next level commander, which is the battalion commander level. The battalion commander is the first level commander in an army that can convene a court-martial. And the type of court-martial they can convene is a summary court-martial. That is the lowest of what will be three levels of court-martial. Uh, the summary court martial is is rather informal. Uh, it's it doesn't actually count as a criminal conviction, um, and so it, it is is frequently used. But it is not um, when people think of courts martial, they're normally thinking not of a summary, but rather of a special or general courts martial. And that's what the next two levels of commanders can do. So a, a brigade commander, which is one up from that battalion commander level, can convene a special courts martial. And that's the first court martial that truly looks like a regular court. There's a judge, there's a military judge who's a lawyer, there's a defense counsel, there's a government counsel, there it can be a, a jury or what we would call a panel um, that's deciding that court martial. Uh, and then a, the next level up from that battalion commander would be a division commander or a corps commander or even other levels above that, but they can convene what's called a general courts martial. And that's the, the biggest court martial there is. It can impose penalties up to uh, the death penalty. It can try any offense. Um, it has, again, it looks very similar in, in, to a special court martial. Uh, it just has a, it's a bigger panel, actually, and, and it can try more offenses and meet out more punishment. Okay. So one of the things you mentioned is sort of the, the transition then from sort of these, these commanders deciding courts martial and more towards a uh, civilianification or a more traditional approach. So what does that new approach look like? Yes, and commanders don't, I should make sure I clarify, commanders don't decide the court-martial. They decide if a case is going to go to a court-martial. At that point, the commander loses most, um, or loses the ability to actually decide if the, the accused or the, the defendant in civilian world accused in the military world is guilty or not. The commander isn't making that decision personally if it goes to a court-martial. The commander is just saying, this case I think merits a court-martial and then orders the court-martial to occur. That's called a referral decision to send it to a court-martial. He refers that charge to a court-martial. Up until now, it is a commander and only a commander who can refer cases to a court-martial. The only way a court-martial got started was by order of a commander through that referral decision. And it was believed that that was important for the commander to have that ability and only the commander because that was a tool the commander used to exercise 
discipline, maintain good order. Uh, and he was the one or he or she was the one who knew what was needed in the unit, uh, so to speak. However, the new changes that just got passed, uh, well, just over a year ago now, December of 2021, those changes remove certain cases or certain offenses from the ability of a commander to refer. So now what we're moving to is a model that is, it's a hybrid model because some cases, some offenses, the commander still has the ability to refer, but other offenses are now going to be only referred by what we're calling a special trial counsel. And that will be a judge advocate who is directly reporting to the secretary of the army who is the referral authority. It's a one-star position. Uh, the Army just picked and promoted our one-star, who's going to be our special trial counsel, actually, uh, yesterday. He just got promoted to uh, one-star. That person, and through a, a, his offices, they'll have field offices, it's going to look somewhat similar to installation-level district attorneys, if you will, who will have the ability to decide if certain, what we're calling cover defenses, will go to trial or not. It's the covered offenses roughly align with what would be sort of felony offenses. Uh, so murder, uh, sexual assault, uh, kidnapping, a few others. I don't have the list off the top of my head, but uh, essentially serious felony offenses that would be crimes, whether or not you were in a military context or not. Um, sort of uh, ordinary crimes, if you will, that are felony level offenses are going to be in the purview of that special trial counsel to decide if that should go to a court martial or not. In addition to that, if the accused in a case where there is a covered offense has done any other misconduct, the special trial counsel gets jurisdiction of the whole thing. So if there's any covered offenses involved, special trial counsel gets the whole thing, as well as any collateral or related misconduct that goes on in that case. So it's fairly expansive. And who gets to decide if it's a related offense or if it's a covered offense is the special trial counsel. So they're, they're kind of defining their own jurisdiction. Uh, the military-specific offenses, so like AWOL, failure to, failure to report um, disobeying a superior commissioned officer, something like that, those still fall under the purview of the commander to decide if they want to refer if there's no related covered offenses and the, the special trial counsel hasn't pulled all of it into their jurisdiction. So um, it's a hybrid, but it's also a pretty massive change in how we go about doing things. It takes effect in December of this year, so still a lot of figuring on how it's going to actually work in practice. Okay, so that's that's all pretty interesting, and it it sounds like the uh, the UCMJ or Uniform Code of Military Justice is trending away from a commander's uh, tool. Do you, I mean is this gonna? Do you think it's gonna continue this way, where some of the more military specific things also move to this uh, special trial council, or what is kind of the future of military justice looking like? I think a lot of the offenses will move, those military offenses will move by default because it is, in my experience at least, it is infrequently the case where you have a court-martial just for disobeying a superior commissioned officer. Normally, if you're getting to the level of a court-martial, which is a federal conviction, so it's kind of a big deal if you get convicted in a court-martial, 
Um, a special court martial would be the equivalent of sort of a federal misdemeanor, and a general court martial would be the equivalent, a conviction at that would be the equivalent of a federal felony offense, which um, is not something you want, obviously. So um, rarely do we end up at a court martial for, it can happen, but rarely that it's it's just a military offense. There's other ways of disposing of that. There's um, administrative action that remains with the command. There's um, Article 15, which is a, a tool the commander still has to, to use. So I think, though, that when there are when there is conduct that's going to end up at a court-martial, frequently it's going to involve one of those covered offenses. And so I think a lot of, whether intentionally or not, a lot of these, a lot of our court-martial are, are going to be coming out of that special trial counsel office. They're going to be the referring them as opposed to the commanders. Um, there was... There was a push, uh, there was a, a plan in Congress to remove all of it from commanders and just say, hey, the whole thing, whether or not you go to a court-martial, goes to this special trial counsel and just sort of a pure DA model, uh, civilian DA model, where it's a JAG who is appointed as sort of the DA for each installation, if you will, and they make that decision. That did not make it through, obviously. Um, and some of the concern with this comes from the the ability to do court martial when you're in a deployed environment or do justice around the world. Um, if you have just installation, U.S. installation-based uh, referral authorities who are these JAGs, then when the command picks up and moves somewhere, well, how do you administer justice if you're you know, deployed who knows where, right? Engaged in some kind of conflict. Uh, so that's one of the issues that comes up sometimes uh, as far as the division between command and um civilian but there there is civilianization of the system but um i mean i don't think the trend's going to you're right in that the trend is to take the the decision authority away from the commanders and, and move it to these um lawyers i mean they're still they're jags right they're in they're in the military in some way not in some way they're in the military but um they're not the commander and so that trend i think is going to continue i think and this is just me purely speculating, but it, it's probably just a matter of time before they just say, hey, the whole thing is just going to go to the special trial counsel and it's going to be a military prosecutor's office in some way. And they're going to decide if a case is going to go to court martial. Maybe the commander gets some kind of veto ability at that point, because um, that is also one of the concerns is in addition to the the need to do justice around the world and keep order around the world of, you know, your own troops. Um, the, the commander is the one who knows what the mission of that unit is. And if you're, you know, I have one truck driver in my unit and that truck driver happens to have committed a crime, but I have a deployment order and I need to leave tomorrow and I need that truck driver. I can't afford to have that truck driver back here, you know, at Fort Riley or whatever, facing court martial charges. I need him in Afghanistan, I need him in I don't know, Ukraine or Poland or whatever to drive his truck. That becomes a conflict, right, between the commander then and this prosecutor person, this military prosecutor. So who who wins over that? I, I think right now the way it's set up is the prosecutor would win. The special trial counsel would win um, to refer the case and have that person face court martial charges. So maybe they're a way for the commander to veto and say, hey, I, I need this person right now so you can try him later. I, I don't know. But um I'm sure there will be more changes. Just the, the, the pace of changes has, you know, there was very few changes to the UCMJ 
when it was passed in 1950. There were some changes in the 60s. There were some changes in the 80s and some minor tinkering around the edges, but that was about it. <clears throat> and then in the last, like I said, I think 12 years, there's been fairly significant changes every couple years. And so I expect that to continue. Okay. Now, I kind of want to pivot here to another topic. Um, and, and that topic is a little bit more related to global uh, current events. And, and that's sort of the issue of war crimes, right? So right now we have a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Um, a lot of media outlets and things, news organizations have been reporting on uh, at least what they call war crimes, right? In the colloquial sense. Um, so could you possibly explain like what in the legal sense, what is a war crime? Is this, does this fall under the uniform code of military justice? Is it a separate, I mean, how, how does this kind of break down and work out? Yeah. So a cu- couple issues there. Um, as far as what it falls under and that, that kind of becomes the biggest problem, which is the last problem that I'll sort of address that first is, is how do you prosecute these things? Leaving aside, let's just, we'll come back to what is a war crime and what war crimes are occurring and that sort of stuff in a second. But as far as how you actually hold someone accountable for uh, committing a war crime, uh, ideally they are prosecuted by the country to which they belong. So for example, if a U.S. soldier committed a war crime in Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever, we would prosecute them under the UCMJ. Uh, I mean, there are analogous provisions to, for example, if they said, hey, this person um, killed a bunch of civilians. Well, that's, we call that murder. um, And we would prosecute you under the UCMJ for murder. Uh, That's one way to do it. There are international tribunals that get involved in this as well. One of the more famous ones, like the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, uh, is one of the more famous ones that has done some war crimes prosecution that goes on in The Hague and the Netherlands under the auspices of the UN. There's International Criminal Court, which the U.S. is not a party to, but Russia is, um, that has um, jurisdiction to, to prosecute war crimes, could do it. Uh, the problem with that is you have to voluntarily give the person up basically to to the UN to go prosecute them. Like the UN isn't going to come in and like snatch them up and go prosecute them somewhere. Um, so basically, if if one of the parties to the conflict doesn't have the person in their custody and isn't willing to prosecute them, then it, it's kind of tough to actually hold anybody accountable for some of this stuff. Um, you've seen... Um, Ukraine has prosecuted some Russians who they've captured, who they have alleged have committed war crimes. So that's one way you could do it. Um, Russia could prosecute their own soldiers for committing war crimes. Unlikely. I don't think we've seen that, but it could happen. Or you could have one of these international tribunals do it. You could even stand up. The UN could commission an ad hoc tribunal to, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war crimes tribunal kind of like what the U.S. did for Nuremberg after World War II. Again, that's that's unlikely. Uh, the U.S. in World War II had the benefit of we controlled the territory. Uh, you know, we, we took over all of Germany and could just go grab people and bring them into court. Um, I don't think that's going to happen in Russia and Ukraine. And so we're not going to be able to physically go grab Ukraine or the U.S. or whoever international tribunal isn't going to be able to go grab these people and prosecute them. Uh, international law is very much a, you know, um, 
you consent to what you want to consent to and you can kind of fight off the rest of it. So actually holding folks accountable, difficult, uh, difficult problem. On the front end of all this, as far as what is a war crime, generally it's a violation of uh, a the law of war in some way or a violation of typically something in the Geneva Conventions uh, that also violates a criminal statute and that has a connection to the armed conflict that is occurring in some way. Uh, so there are lots of, of crimes that might be occurring in the space where a war is going on, like in Ukraine, right? Um, but it's important that that crime actually be connected to the, the armed conflict that's that's occurring. Um, so a lot of the things you're seeing are like the missile strikes that Russia is, Russia is conducting against various uh, spots in Ukraine, particularly the power grid and some other places like that. The, the law that would apply there for the law of war uh, are basically the four what we call the principles of the law of armed conflict, which are distinction, uh, pro- proportionality, military suffering, and uh, military necessity. So what you would look at to see if, if that strike violated one of those four principles. Normally, we're not, not normally going to violate uh, unnecessary suffering, uh, so I won't really spend much time on that. So you're really looking to see if the target you're aiming at is a military target? Does it contribute in some way to the war effort? Um, would destruction of that target bring about some kind of concrete advantage to you winning the war? Uh, and that's a fair number of targets, right? That can, can be swept up in that understanding, right? If you can say, well, that power station is powering the headquarters for this armored division. I mean, that's, that's a decent justification for targeting whatever it is you're targeting. Um, the proportionality decision is you look at what is my military advantage gain. So like in that example, cutting off the power to the division headquarters versus on the other side of the scale, if you will, how much harm am I doing to things I shouldn't be targeting? So civilians, um, civilian infrastructure, the scale, however, tips in favor of allowing you to strike something. So the, the, the language is that the, the harm to civilian infrastructure must be excessive in relation to the military advantage. So it's not a strict 50-50 balance. Um, so a lot of this tips in favor of allowing you to strike. But at the forefront, though, the first thing you have to do, kind of working backwards through this question, but um, the first thing, the first duty you have in a law of war is that duty of distinction, and that is to only target things that are targetable, and things that are targetable are military objectives. Again, broad definition for that. Um, but so long as your target is a military objective, um, you would then look at the proportionality analysis to decide if you you know were, were proper in striking that thing or not. Um, the other kind of curveball in some of the stuff is you don't know a lot of times what a strike was aimed at versus what it hit. And so if you're aiming at division headquarters, that is a military objective. You're, you're fulfilling your duty of distinction. Um, and you anticipate that that strike will only hit the military headquarters. So under a proportionality analysis, you're saying, well, I'm gaining taking out military headquarters of armored division, and I do not anticipate any civilian casualties in that. You're fulfilling most of your obligations. If that round or that missile or that projectile or whatever misses and hits something else, your intention was not to hit that other thing, right? It hits civilian apartment building or something like that. Um, that is 
sounds callous, but an unfortunate reality of war in some instances, right? You're, you're going to miss sometimes. Now, you have a duty to do everything you can to prevent that, but it does not necessarily mean it was a war crime if you hit something you weren't intending to hit. So that's why the when you're looking at things that are occurring on the news or something, uh, just because something gets hit that you don't think should be hit, civilian apartment, um, you know, other objects that are, that are being struck, it, it does not necessarily mean it was a war crime. It could, right? If you were aiming at that and saying, hey, I'm going to terrorize the population by blowing up this playground or this theater or whatever. Well, probably not any military necessity there. So don't think you're satisfying your obligations under the law of war. But you need to know what they were aiming at. Um, if that was the intent of the attack, if, you know, the under distinction, they were targeting a civilian thing, probably a war crime. If they weren't, uh, probably not a war crime. Um, but again, the ability to actually hold them accountable on the back end is, is iffy. One final thing on this is the the law of war, that use in bellow, which is the law that applies in war, that duty, uh, the distinction, proportionality, military necessity, and the Geneva Conventions, that applies regardless of how you got in the war in the first place. So the use ad bellum or the law going to war. So even though I think most people outside of Russia and maybe Iran would agree that the, it is an illegal war in terms of Russia has violated Ukraine's sovereignty and they did not have a, a justification for going to war in the first place. They were not acting in self-defense. It's in violation of the UN Charter. Even if they have violated that, once you're in war, once the shooting starts, the law of war still applies um, and things are either not a war crime or a war crime based on their own merits, not just because the whole war is illegal. So just because the whole war is illegal doesn't mean that every single action within the war is therefore illegal. Um, you'd have to look at the individual strikes and see if they met those four principles or violated some other provision of the Geneva Conventions to know if you had a war crime or not. Okay, so there's a clear distinction then kind of in, in military justice, um, or I guess in the law of war between going to war and then conduct during the fighting. Correct. Yeah, there's a, there's a very clear line in between. Now they 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 blend, right? I mean, you know, the law in war becomes the law in war. But yeah, once once the shooting starts, uh, there is the law in war that applies regardless of how you got there in the first place. Okay. Now, what about a statute of limitations, and then sort of the issue of of attribution? So so I'm thinking, um, say a if one side attacks the other. It's later determined that this attack is a war crime, right? Like what level, who bears responsibility, uh, how many people that assisted in the targeting, um, does it go all the way down to the guy who fires the round? Um, what level is it, does it extend and how long does, does I guess, the, the statute of limitations for these things extend? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure on the statute of limitation questions. Most things like, um, are not going to have a statute of limitations. Um, most war crimes are fairly serious. We do draw a distinction between sort of war crimes and then what we call grave breaches that are very serious war crimes. So uh, murdering civilians, taking hostages, things like that. Uh, there is certainly no statute of limitations on grave breaches. I, I, I don't know about individual specific um war crimes there's things that are more technical like 
you know, there, there are provisions in the Geneva Conventions that outlaw such things as like taking pictures of POWs for like public curiosity purposes. Technically, if you do that, you've committed a war crime. Uh, is it, you know, it's certainly not a grave breach. Um, I, and I don't know if it would really merit prosecution or not. Um, but for the things that most people are seeing on the news that involve these like strikes where people die or people are killed, those are the most things we're concerned about. And those would not have a statute of limitations. Um, I'm forgetting the second part. What was the, you were saying statute of limitations and some other part. Yeah, of- so that's all pretty interesting. Um, I know we, we only got a couple minutes left. So is, is there anything you still want to address as it relates to military justice or another topic? I don't think so. I think we've covered uh, military justice pretty well so far. We're still, I mean, like I said, with the MJ stuff, we haven't done any court martials, courts martial, uh, plural of courts martial, uh, yet under the new system. So to be determined how it kind of shakes out and sort of the fault lines between commander and between this new special trial council thing. So that'll be interesting to see that certain powers, like the power to grant clemency remains, or excuse me, the power to grant immunity for a witness that remains with the commander, even if it's a, a trial, a court martial that has been referred by the special trial council, the power to pick the panel, to pick who's on the jury that remains with the commander, not with the special trial council. Um, so if you have a situation where the, the commander thinks the case shouldn't go to trial and the special trial council thinks the case should, is going to go to trial, um, I, I'm not sure how that all shakes out yet. There's a lot of, um, fault lines in the system that I think still need to be figured out that, um, will be interesting to see on the, on the UCMJ side when these changes actually take effect, um, in December of this year. So, um, stay tuned for follow up on how it actually works out. And any changes Congress decides to make on top of the changes that they made last year. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.